Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn. And in this episode, I talk to Victoria Preston about secular pilgrimage. What does pilgrimage even mean when you don't adhere to a particular religious tradition? And can we ever find ourselves when we travel, or will we be forever searching? We talk about the animal urge to move in the spring, which I'm certainly feeling right now as I record this in late March 2021, and how some places call to something deep within, perhaps due to thousands of people travelling the same paths over millennia. We also discuss the feeling of being rooted or hefted to a place, and whether those with wanderlust in our souls can ever find home. I hope you enjoy the interview with Victoria today. Victoria Preston has roamed far and wide in her 30 years advising corporate and government clients around the world. She is an Associate Fellow at the King's Centre for Strategic Communications, and her latest book is We Are Pilgrims, Journeys in Search of Ourselves. So welcome, Victoria. Thank you so much for having me. It's a a joy. Oh, indeed. So let's start with a definition. How do you define pilgrimage, particularly as someone who doesn't belong to a specific faith? Well, I personally, I, I define it as a journey with a personal driving purpose to a, to a place of shared meaning. And I, I really went round and round the houses on this when I started researching my book. And I think this idea of a place of shared meaning uh, helped me focus down. Uh, I, of course, people say, well, we go on our annual pilgrimage to Oxford Street to do our Christmas shopping. And I thought, no, I'm definitely not writing about that. That's, <laughs> that, that, that's not a thing. And actually, when I was working in the London Library on the book, I had, a, I had a place that I liked to sit every day and I could look into Mason's Yard and I could see people coming on walking tours of London to a nightclub, you know, that had once hosted I think, uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix or somebody like that. And I thought, yes, well, maybe they feel themselves to be on a pilgrimage, but that's I'm not writing about that either. So for me, that helped me to narrow down what I was thinking about and hoping to write about. And it was really about intention and about places of meaning. Actually, you mentioned the London Library. I wrote uh, three novels in the London Library. Isn't it a wonderful place to work? Oh. I adore it. And I miss it so much right now. I I can't tell you. I miss everything about it. The people, the book stacks, the staff, everything. Yes, it really is uh, serendipity in the stacks. I I remember it well. So I wanted to ask, so the the book has got so much in. And one of the things I thought about at the moment, so the early crocuses and the snowdrops are emerging here in the UK and spring is coming. And you note this animal urge to move, which I just thought was brilliant because I feel that at the moment kind of going crazy in this lockdown. So how have you experienced that yourself? 
Well, I, when I was younger, I, I, I had terrible, well, you, what you would recognize as itchy feet. You know, I had really, really terrible desire to get going and most strongly in spring. And I think Chaucer really understood that, you know, in the, the opening of Canterbury Tales, he talks about how in spring and when April showers pierce, pierce the drought of May and uh, then people do long to go on pilgrimage. And I think we do long to get into the natural world at this time of year and we anticipate it, you know, we can feel it rising like sap in our, in, in our bodies and desperate to get out there. No, and, and, and no more so than this year, I, I would say. It's interesting, the phrase itchy feet, well, obviously we're both British and I use that term as well, but I've had feedback from Americans and others that that is not a term that people use in other countries, <laughs> which is ah. interesting. Yeah, exactly. So just to be clear to people, this is not some disease, a foot disease. <laughs> you mean wanderlust or something like that. I do. And actually in in the book, on the, on the topic of feet or foot, in the book, um, I, I look at the uh, Blackfoot tribes of, of North America to try and understand the very origins of pilgrimage because the, the first site that I, I discovered in my research is the earliest site was this site in, in southern Turkey, Gobekli Tepe, which is about 12,000 years old and which we understand is when small bands of hunter-gatherers came together because there was an advantage in cooperation uh, where, where you have very, very large herds. And in, and in fact, the, the rituals of the Blackfoot people of North America and those rituals only died out in the 19th, late 19th century, where they're in competition for most of the year because there's scar, you know, scarce resources. But when there is an abundance, there's, you have a much better catch if you work together, if you think about those films, David Attenborough films of orcas working as a working as a group or wolves working as a group to surround a huge herd or shoal or flock of birds and actually really make the most of it. And, and in a way, that's when when we start collaborating around that abundance, we all benefit, we can put put surplus aside for more for more lean times. And then typically that you know a great feast of Thanksgiving takes place. And that those places of Thanksgiving, ritual structures begin to be built. And I, I would say that is, for me, that is the sort of seed of the idea of pilgrimage. Oh, that's interesting, because you mentioned the collaboration and people coming together. And yet, for me, I I like being on my own. I'm a real introvert. And I, I the last pilgrimage I did was alone. And the there's the balance between being alone and, as you say, being with other people, like mass events, mass religious events, and all of these things are, as you say, you know, an abundance of, of many things. So how have you balanced that being alone and then being with people in your pilgrimage? My sort of starting point for this book was a, a, a really around a pilgrimage to Rome with a very old friend. And, and we travelled in tandem. So we traveled together, but during the course of the day, we walked separately and we're different, we're very different heights. I would start with that. And, and I'm also, you know, I like to hang around and do bird watching and brought, took my binoculars as an essential piece of equipment. So I would stride ahead and, and look for falcons and nightingales and so on. And then my friend Constance would, 
make her own time and then we would wait for each other and so on. It was a very, very nice way to travel. But I've done a lot of solo traveling for work, actually. There's something about traveling on your own, which is that you kind of want to share it with somebody in the moment. And I think I miss that when I'm traveling on my own. I want to turn around and say, look, isn't that amazing? Look, listen to those nightingales. Listen to that Italian cuckoo with a different accent to the English cuckoo. All of those things. You can talk about when you get back, but in the moment, I think Mm. it's good to share. Mm, That's interesting. That Italian cuckoo, that's brilliant. Do they really have a different call? Absolutely. I mean, they have the same... They have the undeniably cuckoos, right? But they are very, very different. They're just very different tonally to the English uh, call. That's so interesting. And have you sensed that as well? So, for example, on on the way to Rome, um, do you notice the difference in pilgrims between British pilgrims like ourselves and pilgrims from other cultures in the way that they approach it? Yeah, I I, I think, I mean, there was a very interesting... It was a very interesting trip uh, for me because one of the great things about doing a pilgrimage or making a pilgrimage is you, you, you obviously you can't leave yourself behind because as Alan, Alan de Bouton says, you know, you always take yourself on holiday. I mean, there's no getting away from yourself, but I think you travel with a different version of yourself when you are, on a, on a big trip like that, you, you're taking a different you with you. And one thing that was so, so glorious about that walk was we bumped into a group of, well, two young Italian men and a young uh, Lithu- female Lithuanian lawyer. And the five of us walked for, for a day and, and, and spent it, so sort of hung out for one evening and then went our ways. And that sort of reconnection I'd just turned 60 at that point. And, and that reconnection with a kind of more youthful version of myself was absolutely heartening. It was just a kind of such a joyous thing. And really those young Italians with their kind of total, I mean, one of them in particular, complete joie de vivre, you know, his complete joyousness at his, at his own existence uh, was so refreshing, actually so un-English as well. So, yes. Mm. Yeah, and then I wonder, as I'm a secular pilgrim as well, I love religious history and stories and scripture, but I'm not a Christian or any other religion. And I wonder if the experience of faith is different on a pilgrimage than people like us who are the more secular pilgrims. So, for example, you you talk about the mass humanity experiences like the Kumela or the Hajj uh, to Mecca, where there are just so many people of faith I guess flocking together so did did you notice anything like that well I think so I would say two things one is that you you, if you walk along a pilgrim route that has been established for a very very long time you realize you're just another pair of feet walking along that route and you are part of a greater humanity and there's I think there's that feeling of being connected to a bigger humanity is very is very humanizing and is and it takes you out of your own ego and I, I think that is partly what happens on these big collective religious pilgrimages to some people is that they sort of they feel liberated by that connection to a larger humanity. I think from a secular point of view, I I, I, I was I, I didn't put it in the book, but 
we lived in Alberta for a while and it is it's just a stunningly beautiful place and I went out I took a lot of photographs while I was there and I went out one day down the the Cowboy Trail, which runs sort of north-south along the the sort of eastern flank of the Rockies. So you've got prairie to your left and and the foothills of the the Rocky Mountains to your right. And and at one point I just had to stop the car and burst into tears. You know, I just thought this is unbelievably beautiful. And then how how can I have no faith when I live in this amazing world and see this beautiful landscape? And I I sort of, I was sad that, you know, I was sad that I wasn't a person of faith in that moment. Yeah. That's interesting. And you mentioned in the book, there are places where heaven and earth are closer. And it sounds like that was one of those places, you know, or where the the veil is is thin. So were, were there places that were more, I guess, traditional pilgrimage spots along any of your sort of investigations where you also felt that way? Any any places of man-made as well as nature? I think in Delphi in particular, I mean, of course, Jerusalem is full of, uh, you know, it's full of the faithful and the history and and all of those things. But when I went to Delphi, I got up very early the next morning so I could see the site before it filled up with people who come up for the day. And I went onto the slopes of Delphi, the, the, this Delphic site, and I thought, yeah, well, okay, uh, I'm not really feeling it. And then just a little walk a little way down the hill and there is a much older temple of uh, Athena, Pronia, further down the hill and you go in there and you think, wow, now I really do feel it. I mean, this is, this is a bronze age site. People, people built this in a very weird place, miles from anywhere, miles from a civilization, right away from the bigger center in Athens and so on. And why did they choose this place? And I went back to have my breakfast in the, in a, in a cafe in Delphi and I asked the guy, so, you know, What's going on here? Why are we all coming here? What's the, what is this feeling? He said, it's just the way it is, you know. There's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> just how it feels. And he was right. That's really interesting. And I, I wonder sometimes, because I've been in, so Jerusalem's a, a great example to me. I love Jerusalem, but for the art and culture, I don't think I've ever felt touched by anything spiritual because <laughs> it feels like a big tourist centre in, in some way. Whereas you go to somewhere that's more natural, as you talked about, and and feel something spiritual. And I, I wonder whether it's because of the, I mean, Delphi is, is ancient. No one really worships there now. No one you know adheres to that religious sense and as you say there's there's something there that connects to something deeper and I sometimes think it's because of the number of people who have been there and almost an impression left over time is that something you you feel absolutely Joe I totally agree with you I think you're absolutely right it sort of seeps into the stone somehow and and there's there's a wonderful place when we get out of lockdown there's a wonderful place in England my absolute favorite place for pilgrimage in England is a tiny little 7th century chapel in Bradwell-on-Sea in Essex called St. Peter's on the Wall. And it's built out of the old stones from what was a, a Roman fort on the coast there. And it's very remote. It's on a tidal, at the edge of a peninsula, which has a tidal estuary, the Blackwater estuary. And it is, it's just exquisite. And you go in there and you feel, it's a tiny place and you feel this thousand fifteen hundred years worth of spirituality just kind of seeping out of the stones is something it really is something else 
Mm. I mean, it's strange. I live in Bath and I often look up at the Abbey. There's this sort of medieval, uh, originally, I guess, medieval, but then you've got the pagan site of the Roman Baths and before that, the pagan Brits with their goddess of the water. And, And I feel the same way about the stones being used in these different religious ways over time, which now it's quite cool. They're, they're actually going to heat the church with water from the ancient spring, which wow. I love that connection between the ancient and the new and the pagan and the religious. It sounds like that church is, is something similar. It is, and at, and at a more kind of grandiose or more elaborate level, I would say that the Umayyad Mosque in Damascus of course, we can't go there right now and not, not because of COVID. But this is a very, very special place. There was originally a temple to a pagan god of thunder, and then it, there was a temple to, to Roman god of Ju- Jupiter, and then there was a Christian church there. And then in the 8th century, the mosque was built. And at one point, it's, it, it straddled both Christianity and Islam. So it both coexisted on the same site and then ultimately the Christians allowed the Islamic um, institution to take over, but but they still welcome Christians in. And one of the reasons for that is that it is there's a shrine to St. John the Baptist there, and the head of St. John the Baptist uh, is meant to be buried in this shrine, and so Christian pilgrims come and also... Uh, a lot of Shia pilgrims come from Iran and then and 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 so on. And and so you're allowed in and you feel welcome and you don't feel like you're imposing as a non-Muslim, you don't feel like you're imposing. And the place is just absolutely glorious. And so this polished smooth, the courtyard of the of the mosque, the outdoor areas, sort of silken. The stones are silken through the bare feet of uh, worshippers over the course of 1200 years. It's, it's quite a place. It's quite something. Mm, well, that's interesting because I, I find that I particularly love Gothic cathedrals because of the, the eyes taken up with the, with the architecture. I love the sparse lines. And of course, a lot of the mosques are very elaborate and beautiful and coloured and uh, the tiles and the writing and very beautiful in a different ways. So do you think this search for art and beauty also enables people uh, to want to go somewhere on pilgrimage, I guess? I, absolutely. And I think, well, Chaucer knew that. By the time Chaucer is, is you know, writing Canterbury Tales, the people who are in his tales and on their way to Canterbury are going for a number of reasons. And one is that the, 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 the cathedral was so wealthy then and 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 so rich that people was was this in a sense it was their only opportunity for ordinary people to see the enormous wealth that was you know was held by the wealthy who were the sponsors of the cathedral i had i had an experience i was traveling in in ecuador with my son when he was about 11 and we were in quito and we went into this church in quito which is which is very famous. I didn't even know about it then. It's just, everything inside is covered with gold leaf, everything, and it's very overwhelming. And sitting in the pews in the church were these incredibly impoverished uh, indigenous people, very very poorly dressed, obviously ex- extremely poor in this gold church. And I felt a big sense of outrage and saying, you know, what is going on here? But but actually, if you 
look at it the other way around. The church provides, and and I guess to, to the same is true with all temples, they provide a place of enormous richness of art and wealth to everybody. They're free. You don't have to pay to go in. At least you didn't when they were first made. You don't have to pay to go in. They're open to everyone. They, they, in a way, museums have superseded that as places where we go to look at the best of. Think about English cathedrals. You had the best music. You had the best orators. You had the people of ideas giving giving sermons and so on. And anybody could go in. You, you, you didn't have to have land or money or anything. You could go in, you could see the best craftsmanship. I think that that's one of the sort of great gifts that religion has given to the human race. Mm, oh, I totally agree. And it's funny, I was actually talking to my husband about the Sagrada Familia, which of course is uh, was it 100 years of building and we might yeah. not see it in our lifetime, but it, it's such an incredible building. And I think I would much rather have a Sagrada Familia or another Canterbury Cathedral or a Bath Abbey than another block of flats. And I think it, it's that assessment of would I be willing to be poorer in order to build another cathedral in my town, which is what people were meant to tithe to the church and, and give that in order to build these incredible buildings to, to the glory of, of God? We generally don't do that anymore. And yet the Sagrada Familia to me is the sort of the, the one that is being built in our lifetime. Yeah, well, to, I mean, to, to be fair, let me just think about Norfolk, uh, the Norwich Cathedral. So this is a this is a Norman cathedral. The Normans have have you know they've taken over the ruling of the country. They're they're taking down all the the wooden churches and they're building. They're importing all the stone from France from Cannes and building these kind of wonderful churches in the middle of big trading centres uh, like Norwich or, or or like Bath or. And they're establishing their own primacy in in the country through through these demonstrations of wealth. And they're taking a cut of all the traders who want trade in, in Norwich in order to, to, to build it. So it's a form of enforced taxation. I mean, you didn't get to have a choice. If you think, I, I did look at the figures because I went to Cologne, which is amazing, by the way. I mean, mm-hmm. oh, that's completely mind-blowing, the, the church in Cologne. But you see how much it demonstrates the connection between faith and trade. And Cologne had to have a cathedral because Cologne was such a big trading place on the Rhine and they had to have the Magi, you know, so they 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 did the deal. They helped out the guy in Milan who had the relics of the three Magi and they said, okay, we'll come and help you with this battle. But, you know, we want the Magi here because we have to have this very prestigious set of relics in order to in order for our cathedral to have the proper status that our city of Cologne deserves as a major trading centre. So this is it's a kind of double-edged sword, really. Mm. You get those beautiful cathedrals. Yeah. Somebody playing, and not always willingly. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, so it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned relics there. I am a. I love religious relics. I've written several books that feature relics, and I, I find them fascinating. Of course, at Canterbury, uh, there are a couple of relics of, of Becket, but they're outside, obviously, the Anglican Cathedral, which I find quite quite 
interesting in that they're in this tiny little Catholic church outside the walls now. And uh, as you you mentioned, it would have been gold and uh, over the top back in the Catholic day. And now it's more austere in the more Anglican sense. So uh, did you see any interesting religious relics in your travels? The, yes, I, I, I one of my one of my favorite trips in my life actually was with my friend Miriam Lexman, who who is a, a, a Slovakian politician who sits in the European Parliament, and she's a devout Catholic. We met up in Beirut, and then we we got a lift up to the Kadisha Valley to the the, the monastery of Saint Anthony's, and we stayed there for a few days. And it was there were relics all over it. I mean, there was little casements of relics in the in the chapel and all over the place. It was an incredible place. And the, and then when we came to leave after a few days of meditation and just walking in the hills and and thinking and talking, I said, "Well, let's let's talk to the people who 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 run the place and see if we can get out of here." So we said, oh, you know, can we get a bus into the nearby town? No, no, there are no buses. What, do you think we could uh, we could arrange a taxi to take us to the nearest town? No, no, there are no taxis. <laughs> and you're clinging to the side of a mountain. You're really in no, the middle of nowhere in this very remote monastery. And I said, well, what are we going to do? And she said, I'm, I'm just going to pray. <laughs> I said, great. Let's see how that works. That, you know, this is a good test of your faith, Miriam. Anyway, she did pray. And actually, a few hours later, her friend showed up. I said, did you, you know, did you call him? She said, no, we don't have a signal. We had no signal, no phone signal. It was far too remote. Anyway, her friend turned up, Fritz, and we jumped in the car with him. And then, and then we, we had this most incredible journey at night through the uh, Becker Valley down to Baalbek, where we were going. Um, and it was just extraordinary. And I, I think we could see, it was a beautiful night, very, very clear. And we could see Mars uh, from the sort of ridge of mountains where we were as we came down into the valley. Mars was hanging and it looked like it was really hanging low in the sky. I mean, it was an optical illusion, of course, but it looked like it was hanging down into the Bekar Valley. And you could, we were going to go and see this very, you know, the very early Roman temples at Baalbek. And you could feel why it was in the ancient world that there was this great uh, looking up to the sky for a sense of belonging to the universe and the great maker and so on. And, and I think that experience was a window for me into why in the ancient world, the gods were really in the sky because there they were, there was the moon and there was Mars, you know, so, so strongly. I know that's lovely. What a lovely image. And, and maybe, yes, maybe her prayers were amplified by the holy relics (laughs) in the monastery. (laughs) She's just the most fantastic person, I I promise you. So you mentioned that your souvenir objects in the book, which have the power to transport you to places once visited. And I love that because I'm kind of uh, minimalist. I I don't have many things. So I was like, oh, what things must you have? So could could you share a couple of those and, and why we can attach this meaning to objects? I have a couple of them right next to my desk. They're sort of my daily objects. And actually, one is a piece of dried root twisted um and the other is 
a, a jawbone of an antelope, half a jawbone of an antelope, very bleached with the teeth, very wobbly. And I picked them up off the ground in the central Kalahari game reserve when I was there a few years ago doing a piece of work. And I was interviewing a group of women who did not want to be relocated into a settlement. The government of Botswana wanted to resettle their indigenous people into villages. And understandably, not everybody wanted to do that. And I, we, I simply couldn't get away into what was really going on. One of the things they said, I said, well, why, you know, there's nothing here. You're in the middle of the desert. What is it? What keeps you here? This is through an interpreter. And they said, oh, well, we, we've been to that settlement. We don't like the taste of the water. I was like, you're in a desert. The water is so, it's like such the most important thing, the things that mean something in a place. And I thought, this is out of my depth here. I don't really understand the sense of place these people have. I picked up these two objects and I took them away with me. And over the years, and, and it's 15, 16 years ago now, I look at these things and I, I try and get from them what it means to have a sense of place. What my what my friend in Yorkshire says, calls being hefted. I think in Yorkshire, they, they say sheep get hefted to a particular piece of moorland and they hate to be moved. You know, it's very distressing for them. And in a way, we're all like that. And it, this it was a key for me into pilgrimage, why we go to particular places, because we we somehow hefted to them. We, we may not even be able to explain it, but it, it, they draw us to them. So that's why I have them. It's a kind of, I'm still trying to figure out how it works, that whole sense of place, but those are the two objects that help me. That's really interesting because this is something I struggle with all the time, which is a sense of home and this is this pandemic time, this pandemic year, this is the longest I've ever spent in one place. And I've moved uh, in a lot of my life. My family always moved and I've lived all over the place. And I've never really felt like this is home. And is that what you're trying to find as well? Do you want to be rooted or hefted in one place? Or are you happy being a, a wanderer? Well, this this is a great question. What I would say is that we there's a paradox, right? There's there's you know Felix Fabry, who was one of the early pilgrims whose work I read in researching the book. He's a 15th century Swiss monk, and and he he decides he wants to go to Jerusalem. He's never seen the sea. He's terrified. He's more terrified of drowning than he is of dying from any other cause. And and just before he sets off, he says that homesickness is never greater than in the days and hours just before we leave home. But in my view, this is just simply a taste of what is to follow. As soon as we set out, we want we want we kind of pulled back. And actually, if you if you look at Homer's Odyssey, which I'm sure you you have, and is a, is a great travel book. I mean, I know it's not seen as a travel book, but it is really a great travel book because it has so much in it about what it means to set off on a journey and what it means to be away from home and then what it means to come back. And actually, you know, his wife, of course, is is waiting for him on Ithaca, the island, and, and waiting and, and constantly sewing and unpicking his shroud in order to keep the suitors at bay. My, my brother was on a huge uh, transit line, sailed across the Atlantic. My sister-in-law was worrying the whole time. And then you know, I called him when he arrived in Antigua and I said, you realise that my beautiful sister-in-law has been picking and unpicking your shroud the whole time you've been away. You were worrying about whether you would drown at sea. And, and you, must, you must understand that when you go back, that as the person coming home, 
have to think about not only your home, but the people that you left behind and that you come back, then you come back to. It's this pull and pull back. I and mean, you must feel that, Joe, too. Yes, I, I do. And my husband is not someone who feels it. And I'm always pondering on whether this is something we're born with, whether we're born with this wanderlust and people like us and the people I have on this show and the people we meet on our travels have this. And some people don't have this. And the struggle is understanding that other perspective because even the time you're away. So when I, the, the last, that, that walk I did to Canterbury, I was only gone eight days, six day walk and one either side. And for me, it felt like the longest period of time in my last year because we have been at home so much and yet my husband you know was was hardly he wasn't waiting on picking my shroud it wasn't quite <laughs> so dangerous but it was like he was like oh hi you know you're back so it's only been a week and I'm like it felt like a much longer time and it's almost like time changes when you are away from home I I, I, I loved listening to your account by the way I really I, fa- I found it very resonant I did a walk from Canterbury to Dover, so the first leg of the Via Francigena. And I was only away for one day and actually left home in London, took the train to Canterbury, went to the cathedral and then walked to Dover, quite a long way as it turns out. And then in Dover, caught the fast train back. And when I arrived back at King's Cross with my my walking stick, I felt like I felt like I'd just landed out of the Kalahari desert, you know, (laughs) and I'd been away for one day, but in that one day I had met, you know, somebody had knocked on the door of a farmhouse for, because I ran out of water. It was incredibly hot. I I crossed through a village in Kent where three men were taking an old diesel engine, you know, as part of their hobby. And they offered me a ride into the next village on this old diesel engine, like a, like a train. And so, and told one of them told me the whole story about his son dying and so on. So by the time I came home, I had had been on an epic pilgrimage in the in the space of about fourteen hours. So I totally get your eight days monumental trip in eight days. It's, I mean, it's very encouraging, really, that you can have such an experience in one day, because, again, we're recording this in pandemic times and travel seems to me so important in so many ways. And yet almost what well, is impossible. I can't even see my mum in, in Bristol, which, you know, is not very far from Bath. I, I can't even go that far. I can't even walk very far from my home. And I wondered, like, what have you felt about travel in this year when we haven't been able to go anywhere and, and have your thoughts changed I every single day I fantasize about putting on my backpack and my walking boots and walking to Stockholm (laughs) where my where my son lives with my two grandsons and his wife and I just think well I you know I speak to them through FaceTime and so on I know that I'm not allowed to do it of course I'm not doing it but I think about it every single day I think well you know when I was 18, I'd 19, whatever it was, I hitchhiked from London to Tehran and I just set off with a bag. And why can't I just do that? Why can't I just you know, basically set off to Sweden? I've had COVID. I had it in January, not very nice. And so I have some immunity, but of course it's morally wrong and I'm not going to do it. But I think about it every single day. I fantasize about somewhere different all the time. You know, yeah, the other day I was talking to someone in Vienna and I was like, oh, I, I think I'm going to come to Vienna. That's going to be my next trip. And, and then I'll talk to someone else and I'll be like, oh, no. And now I'm going to go and see that church you mentioned, Bradwell 
whatever it was called. Oh, <laughs> yeah, like, you, must, you must go and see. It's so wonderful. It's just so absolutely wonderful. That place. Yeah. So it seems like the, the bucket list is getting bigger and bigger Oh, and yet smaller and smaller. Because I think, you know, like, for example, I, I might walk to Glastonbury because that seems like I could do that because it's it's not that far. It's only, what, two days walk probably if I if I have some big days. And it's like, well, there you go. I could do that rather than walking to Sweden, for example. There's a really nice walk from Glastonbury to Wells Cathedral, actually, a day walk, which I think the British Pilgrim Trust run. I, I actually went with them earlier in the, uh, last year. They've got a mapped route that you can follow. It's very, it's a very, it's a very worthwhile thing, particularly if you're if you're down in the West Country, anyway. Indeed. So the the book has the subtitle of Journeys in Search of Ourselves. So do you think we ever do find ourselves on the journey or is it a different version of us every time? I think it's a different version of ourselves. And by the way, I don't think we ever really get there, quite honestly. I was thinking about this question earlier and I thought, you know, I've met when I was doing the research, I met all these different characters in the London Library, largely through the books on the book, the bookcases, Mark Twain and Richard Burton, the explorer. And so I met some fantastic people. And of course, one of the people who features in the book is Jack Kerouac. And he goes off to be a volunteer fire watcher on, on, in the Cascade Mountains one summer to get away from himself. He's waiting for On the Road to be published and his publisher can't decide because it's, the, the book has got so much controversy uh, within its pages. And so he goes off in an incredibly remote place. He's, he's a practicing Taoist. So, you know, Taoism uh, pilgrims take place on mountaintops. So he goes off to the top of this mountain and he spends six weeks up there on his own looking for relief from really from himself and relief from desire and the more the longer he's up there the more desperate he is to get relief from desire so his desire for you know he's he's got a big desire even though that desire is relief from desire and he never really gets there and he walks out of his little hut in the middle of the night and he stares out at the mountain opposite which is called Hosamine and this is his kind of daily view Hosamine Hosamine the most beautiful mountain i've ever seen and every time he thinks of it and th- thinks of the void which is what he's you know really craving for uh it just his just his despair gets worse and worse and he just cannot wait to get out of there so do we find ourselves no but you know it's worth still worth trying it is and worth writing about when we get home. It's a way to um, capture the journey. And also, I mean, I from your book, you obviously love research and there's loads of brilliant detail about all these different places. So I highly recommend the book. Now, this is the Books and Travel Show. So apart from your own book, what are a few books about pilgrimage or travel that you love and recommend? I, I, I highly recommend Homer's Odyssey because I think it's a great friend for life. You by that, I've got the Every Man edition here, and I go back to it time and time again. It's poetry, for one thing, and it's also, you know, full of ideas. I wanted to recommend a film, in fact, Werner Herzog's 2019 film about Bruce Chatwin called Nomad, which conveys that paradox we've just been talking about of restlessness and the desire for home. I think it's a great, it's a great insight into perpetual travelling. And then, of course, Eric Newby's uh, classic, A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush, mainly because, you know, we, we can spend an awful lot of time getting ready for big trips. 
and packing and unpacking and shall I take this and take that? And Eric Newby decides he's going to cross with his friend the impassable mountains of the Hindu Kush and he does a, a week's climbing course in Wales and that's all he's kind of, his, that's all that equips him for this big journey, but it doesn't stop him. And I think that is great. It's very empowering and it sort of makes you brave reading reading that book. And then I think on pilgrimage, the very un-PC Hilaire Belloc, The Path to Rome, written in 1902. And what I love about that book is you start reading it and you are almost immediately on the pilgrimage with him. And it is just, just fantastic. You are with him every second of the way until you get to the very last page. And the, the other one that I go back to time and again, and it actually belongs to the London Library, but it, I, I can see that I'm the only person who's ever checked it out since it was first appeared on the new books shelf. It's called The Buddhist Pilgrim at the Shrines of Tibet and written at about the same time as Hilaire Belloc's book. And it's by Gombujab Sibikov and it's translated by Paul Williams, published uh, by Brill uh, in, in Boston. And it is the account of a scholar, uh, a minority um, Buryat scholar who was a Buddhist and the behest of the Russian Geological Society travelled right across Central Asia to Tibet to get an insight into Tibet at a time when non-Buddhists were forbidden uh, to go there. It's just fantastic. It's just so wonderful. It's such a wonderful book. I just have so many more for my reading list after these interviews. So where can people find you and your books online? Hi, I've got a blog called Why Pilgrim, which I tend to write write on every week. And then We Are Pilgrims is my Instagram account. But really the Why Pilgrim blog is where all my ideas uh, flow out. And I I typically uh, do that every week. And then my book is published by Hearst. And is available from the Hearst website. It's also available from Waterstones, Amazon, of course, and all good bookshops. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Victoria. That was great. Thanks so much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.